0: Coming up, brewing up a culture of food safety at Coca-Cola, commercializing precision fermentation, and researching the science of taste. It's all ahead on Episode 20 of Omnivore, from the editors of Food Technology Magazine and the Institute of Food Technologists.
1: This episode of Omnivore is brought to you by CalSAC. Get the What's Hot and What's Not Global Consumer Cravings Report from CalSAC. Visit KELSEC.com slash hot or not and download the free report today.
0: Welcome to Omnivore from IFT and Food Technology, where we explore the intersection of business, science, and technology in the global food system. I'm Bill McDowell. When Jason Richardson joined the Coca-Cola company in 2009, The 137-year-old company's slogan was Open Happiness. Career-wise, Richardson seems to have done just that. From his early days as a microbiologist and research scientist at the University of Georgia and the USDA's Agricultural Research Service, through several scientific and leadership roles with Coke, including food safety, quality, innovation, and strategic initiatives. In his latest role as Coca-Cola's Global Director of Quality and Food Safety, Richardson has been happily working on multiple initiatives to create a future-proof food safety culture and capture value across the worldwide enterprise. Richardson recently talked with Food Technology's Julie Larson brischer about his mission to refresh and reframe Coke's food safety culture to advance performance and growth.
2: Well, hi, Jason. It's so great to talk with you again today to get your take on the future of food safety.
3: Julie, it's uh, such an honor and and pleasure to be part of this segment with you and, and talking about a subject that's dear to my heart, which is food safety.
2: Okay, great. Well, let's dive right in then. Now, in our September issue, we profiled you and you had a quote in there that I really liked. You said that, in part, the professional happiness you derive from the field of food safety and quality, quote, comes from always striving for the pursuit of perfection, knowing that you may never get there, unquote. Would you talk a little bit about what you like best about your career as a food safety and quality scientist?
3: Absolutely, Julie. You know, while there are several things that come to mind, I'll really highlight three things that give me energy every day as a leader in a food safety professional. First, it's really the shared purpose across peers to make a difference in preventing foodborne illness and continuously improving the services and products delivered. You know, in the food and, and beverage industry, you do not have a sustainable business if food safety and quality are not the foundational enablers of your growth strategy. Therefore, you must be a strong advocate and communicator with the business and peers. And what I love is being that that translator of the why, the how, the what, the when and the where to ensure the benefits and impact are clear. I think secondly, what I love about the job is it's being a change agent. It's remaining constructively discontent and taking action into the continued pursuit of uh, progress and perfection with resilience and agility. You know, your food safety and quality programs must have that present forward and future back approach to ensuring the desired outcomes. And then lastly, I think it's just the opportunity to, to create shared value, whether it's bringing a solution to those in needs, for instance, a business problem or paying it forward through your knowledge and experiences to accelerate the development of others. And that's ultimately what I really love about the role that I have and the career that I've made in, in food safety and quality.
2: Well, you know, I love it that uh, when scientists move from the lab to the C-suite, you know, so I'm sure that you, in your current role you kind of see what kind of pressing food safety challenges that we face out there. And I'm wondering if you could speculate on some of the trends we're seeing and maybe even point out a couple potential solutions.
3: Yeah, Julie, it's it's a very relevant question I believe many of us think about constantly, regardless of whether we're in academia, uh, government, nonprofits, or, or the industry and you know while we've made progress over the last several decades and i think it's worth at least you know acknowledging the progress we have made the reality is we are continued to be faced with a lot of, of pressing challenges you know we see with increasing supply chain complexities continuously evolving regulations shifting customer and consumer needs the desire for for operational efficiencies and decreased time to market and the constantly evolving workforce But these also present an opportunity to shape how we further build the culture and capabilities that enable greater transparency and trust in what we do and how we do it. One trend I really see uh, emerging is really around better defining where industry 4.0 and food safety intersect and applying the knowledge in an even more purposeful way to enable enhanced traceability and transparency across the Indian value chain, assurance in the preventative controls applied to mitigate risk, and better decision-making in how we collect, process, and use data to solve challenges. You think about Industry 4.0, it really relies on, on a group of disruptive technologies. For example, Internet of Things, big data, blockchain, advanced analytics, machine learning, there's a big push currently with artificial intelligence and learning our way through that. But then you also have simulations and virtual reality and augmented reality. And then you got the advanced robotics and, and automation that comes to play as well. And that when you purposely apply these tools and technologies, they really can bring many benefits to food safety. And you know, that is currently a trend that we see. How do we connect or intersect the food safety and industry 4.0. And, you know, I would call out that S-SAFE, which is a global nonprofit organization that works to strengthen food safety. You know, they just recently published an open access guidance document on on what industry 4.0 means in the context of food safety and how the two together may be deployed by the food sector to strengthen food safety. You know, and I see this area growing momentum and will only grow exponentially over the, the next decade. And I'd encourage all the listeners to, to read this one.
2: Yeah, you know, um, that's good advice. And I'm wondering if you have some further advice, maybe targeted right at young scientists entering the food industry as a career. Do you have any advice for them?
3: I do. So I would say it's an exciting time for, for young scientists entering the food industry and, and they will define the transformation we make over the next decades. Uh, particularly on the integration of technology into the way we work, the way we learn, and the way we lead. Uh, from an advice perspective, you know, I see four things that would be beneficial uh, to share. I think number one, it's really build that trust and credibility. Champion your discipline. Building the foundation will ensure you meet the challenges throughout your career. Learn how to connect all the different elements of food science and the interactions and translating the science into value creation and capture uh, for impact. Number two, if I had to give advice, would be master the skill of problem solving. Solutions are being sought after every day for the different challenges we are faced with across the food and beverage industry. And always start with asking the right questions. Number three would be invest in your network. You know, it will have a significant return on, on your investment for learning, growth, and in the times of needs. You know, I just call out IFT and IFP, which are, are two organizations where you really can grow your, your network in an accelerated way. And they've been very beneficial for me in my career. And then last, I would say practice continuously the art of communication. Know your audience and the messages they need to receive. So those would be the four gifts that I would give to young scientists entering the food industry as a career.
2: Well, speaking of advice, I really loved our interview conversation about the best re- advice you yourself have received and what advice you like to share with your team. So can you share those with our omnivore
3: listeners? Yeah, thanks Julia. First, I'd like to on, on advice I've received and how I've applied it. Number one is the best advice I've been given is never give up. Life will be a roller coaster and you must keep moving forward. There's a quote from Winston Churchill, success is not final, failure is not fatal. It is courage to continue that counts. And everyone has those legacy moments, those transformational times in their career where an experience accelerates their learning or the impact they can make. And that is where courage shines the brightest. Now on advice that I've given to others, It's really about the speed of learning and change is exponential throughout your career. Resilience and agility are are the critical components of success. Challenge yourself to be differential in the benefits you bring by seeing the bigger picture, influencing with positive intent, and creating shared value.
2: Oh, those are, those are really good. I'm so glad that you've had some time to share with us those insights today, Jason. And um, you're the real thing when it comes to food safety and quality. So it's been a real pleasure.
3: Well, thank you, Julie. And it's been a pleasure of mine as well. And just having the, a few minutes here to to discuss food safety and then also provide a few gifts for those that are entering a career in in the food and beverage industry.
0: Jason Richardson is Global Director of Quality and Food Safety with the Coca-Cola Company. You can learn more about his strategic insights into food safety prevention and food safety culture in Food Technology's September interview. We'll be back with more Omnivore in a moment. But first, this word from our sponsor.
1: Consumers across the globe are looking for more heat and spice in their meat, snacks, and seasoning blends. But what type of heat and which spices specifically are people craving? The What's Hot and What's Not report from Kelsack is a free, comprehensive look at the hot and spicy flavor trends with actionable insights to inform the development of your hot and spicy creations. Visit slash hot or not and download the pre-report today. Once again, that's Kelsac.com slash hot or not.
0: Welcome back to Omnivore. I'm Bill McDowell. Helena, a biotech company specializing in precision fermentation, won the top prize at the Startup Pitch Competition during the recent IFT First Annual Event and Expo in July. Helena received $10,000 in prize money provided by the Seeding the Future Foundation. Helena uses precision fermentation to produce ingredients using breast milk proteins, including lactoferrin, an ingredient with purported benefits to regulate iron levels, improve nutrient absorption, and support cognitive health. Associate Editor Emily Little spoke with Helena's Chief Operating Officer, Paula Delgado, about the potential of precision fermentation and the company's plans to invest the prize winnings.
4: Paola, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today.
5: Thank you for having me, Emily.
4: So first of all, congratulations on winning the pitch at this year's IFT First.
5: Uh, It wasn't expected. Uh, I think that there were a lot of great uh, companies uh, talking about their businesses. It was my first time at the conference, so it was a nice treat to be able to bring that home.
4: What a way to start your first time at IFT First. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so could you talk a little bit about what is Helena and what is Helena offering to its customers?
5: Absolutely. So Helena, we are actually a uh, Consumer biotech company, and we are creating human milk bioactive proteins to be used as food ingredients to fuel and make foods that support a longer health span. Um, as I mentioned during the pitch, our first protein is human which is a multifunctional molecule found in uh, colostrum and human milk that regulate iron levels, improves nutrient absorption, and supports cognitive health. And we are creating these novel ingredients, harnessing the power of precision fermentation.
4: And why precision fermentation? Why is that the route that you all chose to go down?
5: So a few things. Maybe it would be good if I start, like, what what is precision fermentation, right? And Let's take one step back, even to that, and it's like, what is fermentation? Fermentation is a natural process where microorganisms are present in the food, on a food, on a food host, quote unquote, break down the existing food structures uh, effectively, creating a new food with unique characteristics and flavors. This process has been used for thousands of years in an array of different cultures to create foods like juggers, kimchi, sauerkraut, just all all, all these different types of new foods that they are part of our everyday uh, life. Uh, Precision fermentation, uh, what we do is, instead of letting the fermentation process happen organically, we select a microorganism. In the case of Kalena, this is yeast and program these yeasts to produce um, specific proteins during the fermentation process uh, d- d- during the fermentation process in our case these proteins are human bioactive proteins after that we allow this yeast to grow in an ideal control environment called a bioreactor which fosters the fermentation process and allows the yeast to Give birth to Helena's human lactoferrin to turn into Helena's human lactoferrin. So, this technique that has been used for thousands of years has evolved into giving us as humans endless possibility for the manufacture of proteins that were previously available only through animal sources or human sources or sources that only had limits on the scale really. And what is very special about Helena is that we have very, very smart group of scientists that uh, have figured out a way to turn a yeast into a precision fermentation platform that can be programmed to create all types, different types of human bioactives, um, which are which are compounds uh, very well documented to give benefits to an array of human functions supporting just overall a longer health span for humans.
4: And what kind of markets are you looking to break into first with this
5: lactoferrin? We actually are going to market on three verticals, uh, sports nutrition, uh, women's health, and also elderly nutrition. And a lot of these markets have been by looking at what are the specific benefits that lactoferrin delivers to each of these population. And then just looking at the early adopter and who who and why would they consume this and just having a lot of conversations with potential customers.
4: So I remember during your pitch, you spoke about your personal connection with seeing anemia firsthand. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that influences your work at Helena?
5: I grew up in Peru and Peru nowadays, people see it as a somehow developed country. You know, everyone, Machu Picchu wants to come visit, but when I was growing up, it was the early nineties and you have a lot of poverty, 40% underemployment, and people just basically didn't have food to eat. And my mom was a nutritionist in a food kitchen, so she would actually make the mixtures to try to deliver the most nutritional value uh, at a very, very low cost, because these were funded by the government to whomever very poor people that would come and try to eat. And I, th- there was a lot of malnutrition and anemia, and women especially, because in Peru, also a highly Catholic country, just women have like four, five, six children, mm-hmm. right? They were very tired, and they didn't have like a lot of energy, and it, it just felt like all the odds were against them. First of all, they were very poor. They were women. They were not. They had a lot of children. They didn't have uh, the strength to do something else, really, or to work harder, or even try to 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 just make a better life for themselves. So everything was a little bit of a a triple down effect, right? And then you know, very interestingly, and just Peru for some reason it has one of the highest incidences of anemia in their population uh, as a a country on a per capita basis, which to me, it was just very interesting. So when I first met Laura and I first uh, heard about lactoferrin and human bioactive proteins and how they basically interact with the body to deliver iron in an optimized way, Right. And I'm not going to get all science geeky because I'm not a scientist, but like I love what we are doing. And that could be delivered at a scale. It was something that really was really meaningful to me. Right. So, and I met Laura for six months before we even decided to work together. So it's, you know, once what, what, when there is an idea that you keep going back to, you know, you need to, at least I needed to follow my heart on that.
4: Mm -hmm. That's great. I love that you, you know, like you said, you followed your heart and, you know, now you guys have won $10,000 from the Seeding the Future Foundation. What are your plans for using that prize money?
5: So this funding will like help advance our goal of bringing these bioactive ingredients to market and they actually come at a very pivotal time for the company because uh, we have recently scaled have several fermentation brands at commercial scale, which is, which in our case is forty five thousand liters, and we are actually in the process of partnering, looking to partner with new brands to so that they would be interested in launching uh, our lactoferrin
4: in their products. Great. Well, Paola, thank you so much for talking with me and good luck with Helena in the future.
5: Thank you so much, Emily. It was a pleasure.
0: Paula Delgado is chief operating officer of Helena. You can read more about the pitch competition and other highlights from this year's IFT First event in the September issue of Food Technology. Our taste buds are tiny but complex organs made of cells with properties that many other cell types lack. Their impact on human physiology and our individual responses to food fascinates Cornell University's Dr. Robin Dando, an associate professor of food science. In this segment, he talks with Food Technologies Mary Ellen Kuhn about the impact of taste on metabolism and other science of taste research currently underway at Cornell.
6: Well, thank you so much, Robin, for making time to join our Omnivore podcast. We really appreciate it. Now, your academic background, you have degrees in physics and nanotechnology, isn't really typical for a food scientist. So would you share a bit about the path that you traveled from physics to food science?
7: I I got my bachelor's in physics and then moved to nanotechnology, but that was delivered through a physics department. The final class that we took was bio nanotechnology, and I got really interested in this idea that you could build biological circuits and, and, and put together machines that were living living tissue and living cells. And so um, when I moved to the States in 2002 to get my PhD in physics, um, after a few rotations, I, I was really excited by working in biological physics. So looking at membranes and ion channels and receptors and transporters. From that point, when I, uh, finished my PhD I moved to um, a postdoc position at the University of Miami's medical school working in a physiology department so looking at the same you know um, receptor events and ions and transporters and things like that but in now um, a particular class of cells which were taste cells so uh, it turns out that the taste bud is actually um, we oversimplify it when we when we think about it and it's it's An interesting little ball of different um, different cell types that have different roles within that taste bud. It's about 50 to hundred cells, but there are different jobs for each of those cells um, and they're put together in very different ways. They um, have interesting properties that lots of other cell types don't have. They replicate pretty fast. And so that means that we can grow new taste buds fairly quickly and they're always turning over. And so I was able to, to from that point, Specialize in in taste, and was uh, lucky enough to um, be offered a position here at Cornell, where I could start my own research group, uh, looking into taste, but more more specializing in the human side of things than the um, than the cells in a dish side of things.
6: So you've been finding plenty to stay focused on it, it sounds like. And I wanted to go back to something you mentioned where you said they're they're changing, that the taste buds or new ones are, are developing. How does that affect how we taste things?
7: Yeah, so they, the taste buds, they have kind of a, a, a basal layer of, um, I'm going to call them similar to stem cells uh, that produce progenitor cells that are kind of kind of undeveloped taste cells that, that move into the taste bud and then there they can they can mature into a particular cell type type one two or three taste cells um but this process is always happening and so that means that that um we're not generally losing a whole taste bud and then growing a whole new taste bud unless there's been some sort of injury it's a constant resupply so that means that that we're um Uh, those taste buds are are dying at a certain rate. Sorry, the cells inside the taste bud are dying at a certain rate, but they're also um, being replaced at hopefully around about a similar kind of rate. And so so the the abundance of taste buds is uh, going to be the same. Um, Where we found some interesting work, though, is looking into metabolism and obesity and the idea that maybe this balance is being a little bit tipped and uh, we might not be able to refresh our taste buds as fast as they're being lost.
6: Well, I'm really fascinated by that work you've done about metabolism and obesity and how it affects our perception of food choices. What else do we know about that so far? Is it kind of an emerging area?
7: Yeah, there's not a whole lot of research uh, there, but we are finding out more all the time. Our own work suggests that um, if we, uh, if we do lose taste buds over weight gain, this can also correlate with um, some loss of taste uh, function as well. So that means that, that um, it seems like we're, our, our sense of taste is weakened very slightly. And then when we try to sort of replicate that in the lab by pharmacologically weakening people's taste buds, they tend to, to select foods that are higher calorie. And so um, you'd imagine higher calorie probably equates to a more intensely tasting food. You know, you put more sugar in there, you put more and more fat in there. Uh, And so that might represent a feedback loop where as our taste uh, weakens with obesity, we're driven to more intensely tasting foods that are more high in calories. And so therefore maybe contribute to our um, our growing state of obesity.
6: Well, I'm wondering how much weight would a person have to gain uh, to affect their the way their food tastes? And does it work in reverse? If you lose weight, does that affect the way food tastes?
7: Yeah, so um, we've done a little bit of work on this uh, in the past. So our lab balances uh, human sensory work with some work using animal models. So we've, we've uh, worked mainly with mice and some work with rats also. Uh, so in humans, uh, we tracked uh, population of Cornell students across several years and uh, looked for how um, how people who gained weight versus people who lost weight uh, changed in their ability to sense things. And it did seem like there was some weakening of taste in those that uh, gained weight. It seemed to be uh, some six uh differences there also I should mention. Um, but those people were only gaining, I think on an average of about four to five percent, uh maybe, maybe slightly less, maybe three to five percent uh of their of their body weight, which isn't a huge amount for a human to gain. Um, Going to the animal work though, um, we uh, obviously working with with mice and rats. You can specify exactly what they're going to eat, but, like you can't really do with a human. And so there, we were able to to induce um, a, a much more a much more observable weight gain. Um, and our mice, after eight weeks on a high fat diet, seem to have lost around about twenty percent of their taste buds, which is a really a really surprisingly large number um when we have i think it's a very human response to say can we reverse this can we can we diet our way out of this and get our sense of taste back um it's certainly something that i was interested in as well and um what we find is that if we can it lags behind the weight loss so that means that um Even when we we get our mice back to approaching the same weight, they still have not put together those taste buds again that had been lost. So it may come later on in life, but you can imagine that would make a diet very hard to stick to. If uh, you'd lost the weight, but the food still didn't taste as good as it should have to you, and, and you were being pushed by a reward system to consume things that are more unhealthy and more intensely tasting, you can imagine that might be a reason why it's so hard to stick to that diet.
6: Well, this is fascinating. And, and it really is interesting because we are I feel like a lot of this is in the news lately with all the attention that these uh, weight loss drugs have been getting.
7: Yeah, there's been, um, I think rightfully, there's been a ton of of interest in those weight loss drugs, because to me, they, I don't study that. That's not my own area, but they look really effective. Um, I've heard uh, doctors describe it as being like bariatric surgery without the surgery, which, I mean, that's really exciting. And um, I think, you know, we're, we're only just starting to figure these things out. So I think they have a really strong future. Um, I would be fascinated to know um, what happens to taste buds (laughs) uh, when people are on these treatments. And I do know there are some other labs out there, not our own, um, that are looking into that. Um, And it does seem like there are also changes in reward behavior unrelated to food consumption as well. So people who are, are seeing some changes in their cravings or urges for other things that are not related to food when they go onto those drugs so i think there's a lot to be found out still and i'll be i'll be watching it carefully
6: well what are some of the projects coming up in the dando lab that you're most excited about
7: uh yeah sure so um we have uh Lots of work at the moment, looking into angles of sustainability that I think are are interesting. So um, if we're able to, um, if we're able to design foods that can get out to market without having such an impact on the environment, then, but still taste good. Then I think that's a really interesting area to look into. And we're working at the moment on some, some projects related to plant breeding and um, what we're interested in there is the idea that we can put sensory back into plant breeding kind of upfront, as opposed to waiting until a, a, a new type of fruit or vegetable has gotten all the way to market and then people can see if it's successful if instead in the very early stages we can have um, people t- tasting things that are brand new and selecting them from that point on in that early phase uh, then maybe we can be producing produce that's uh, that's more appealing to people
6: it does always get back to taste it seems like so speaking of taste does knowing so much about taste affect the way you think about your own food choices
7: i'm not sure i think that um i i look at taste as it's kind of a shortcut to the pleasure circuits in your brain and there's we I think we natively understand this, that that we we get that if we're feeling bad, we can go out and we can buy some delicious food. And sadly it's going to be temporary, but it will make us feel good. And I think that that that's seen as a bad thing, you know, that's seen as, as tricking yourself into feeling good through through um doing something that might be unhealthy because those foods are probably not that healthy. But um I think that it's, we should just be honest with ourselves. You know, we do lots of things that are unhealthy, and uh, because they they give us some sort of pleasure. And so I think you know, it, I I I can come to terms with eating unhealthily every now and then, as long as as long as uh, it's maintained as a balance.
6: I love that. That's we shouldn't have to have too big of an excuse to go out and get some ice cream.
0: Robin Dando is an associate professor of food science at Cornell University. You can read a profile of Dr. Dando's research into the science of taste in the September issue of Food Technology.
1: Thank you to Kelsack, sponsor of this episode of Omnivore. Get the What's Hot and What's Not report from Kelsack. Visit kelsaccom slash hot or not and download the free report today.
0: And that wraps up this episode of Omnivore. Thanks again to all our guests and my colleagues at Food Technology. Omnivore is produced and distributed by the Institute of Food Technologists. If you enjoyed today's show and want to learn more about Food Technology Magazine or how to join the conversation by becoming an IFT member, visit ift.org slash membership. For more in-depth discussion about innovation in the science of food, check out IFT's other podcast, SciDish, on the news and publications page of ift.org. If you have comments or suggestions for future shows, just send us an email. The address is editors at ift.org. For the entire team at Food Technology and IFT, I'm Bill McDowell. Thanks for listening, and join us again for our next episode. This is Omnivore.